Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt, a teacher at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. My research interests are media archaeology, leftist politics, and pizza ghosts. Uh, Dean wrote the intro, uh, but I am interested in pizza ghosts, so he's right about that. Uh, you talk more about pizza ghosts than about media archaeology or leftist politics, so it just seemed yeah. appropriate uh, to include that yeah. that note. Not, that's that's right. I mean, I think it's good. <laughs> uh, I'm Dean, a Catholic PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. Uh, my research interests are religion and technology and politics and stuff like that. Not Nothing in school is pizza ghosts, uh, maybe one day. Um, when I graduate to Matt's level, um, just not there yet. Uh, so no joke though. Um, like forty minutes from me is um, Alton, Illinois, which is the most haunted city in the United States. Oh, nice. Or uh, so, so that's what I've heard. Um, but the best thing about Alton, Illinois, is they ha- they literally have a pizza restaurant what? that is haunted. Uh, no, yeah. it's too perfect. It's too perfect. Uh, so my wife and I went there, and <laughs> it uh, didn't see any ghosts. I don't know. But did you like consume them on accident and then, you know, later, <laughs> like at night, they were just yeah. <laughs> being silly? What they, uh, yeah, what they don't tell you is that they're in, they bake the ghosts into the pizza <laughs> and, uh, you, you fart them on out. You got to get that ectoplasm on top of that moz- mozzarella. <laughs> uh, do you want the ectoplasm dipping sauce? <laughs> uh, I don't have any good ghost stories except that, um, there was this place in my hometown, I, I grew up in rural Michigan in the middle of nowhere, uh, called John A. Lau Saloon, and apparently there was a, a spooky ghost in the women's bathroom, and because I did not go there, uh, I never got to see it, but yeah, it's a thing, kind of I a guess. Moaning, a moaning myrtle kind of situation. Yeah, real moaning myrtle situation. As far as I know, the ghost wasn't bad news, just uh, there, apparently. So, <laughs> Yeah, that sounds all right. Yeah uh well i'm all i'm all about good like good ghosts yeah uh i don't know i I prefer good ghosts to mean ghosts like if you have to pick one yeah you know my favorite ghost is i don't it's the uh specter of communism (laughs) uh i should have seen that coming um yeah i've been uh, sitting on that joke for a good 30 seconds here (laughs) and uh, glad i got it out uh joke's on you because uh this is a podcast about christianity and leftist politics and you missed a chance to talk about the holy ghost so um, uh here's a theological uh premise right here it's the same same one oh nice uh that's fine i'm okay with it just Um, uh just a hypothesis you can send send your letters of heresy accusation to the magnificast at gmail.com thank you uh we'll put them right in the trash bin um (laughs) so uh well uh, on that topic there's a great segue uh we're talking about private property which we also want to put in the trash bin uh because it is the worst thing um but before we do that we're gonna uh chat about some itunes reviews as far as i understand we've got some of those uh we we didn't get any voicemails this week we did last time that was very fun uh but if you want to be on the show next time give us a ring at 815-408-0745 it's as simple as that you call us up you leave a message we get the mp3s and then we put them on the on the show um so 815-408-0745 uh we don't have any of those so so uh matt do you have some itunes reviews that you're sitting on over there oh yeah we got two very good reviews these are both five stars people are taking our direction only giving <laughs> us good reviews quality nice uh okay so uh the first one 
is called uh, the title is optimistic, insightful, and entertaining. That's what I'm talking That's about. Nice. That's good stuff. That's gonna be this on my is, tombstone. Okay. <laughs> uh, just cheese on mine. <laughs> Whoa! Uh, hold the ectoplasm. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is dumb. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh this is a, a review by friendly atheist marxist uh which is good i'm glad they're friendly yeah I agree. um i do have a little bit of a trigger uh from people who are uh calling themselves friendly atheists though uh too many <laughs> years uh on on the internet and uh too many too many honest questions from friendly atheists uh i think this is probably a trap but i'll read it anyways (laughs) okay uh so the friendly atheist marxist says i came to this podcast after dean shared it in a group on facebook oh good job dean getting that brand out there we did it we shared it we shared it since then i've been telling every leftist i know about it that could be good if you know a lot of less (laughs) one one other person (laughs) (laughs) At a time when left unity is more important than ever, having such a powerful example of the contemporary Christian leftist thought is a useful tool for helping to bring some of our less tolerant atheist comrades around. The long history of Christian thought and political practice continue to lend powerful insights often overlooked by the largely non-religious left. I am deeply grateful for this podcast. Uh, That's very nice. That is nice. I hope that we can do that. Yeah, I think that's pretty encouraging. That's what, I don't know. Uh, I've been fortunate enough in most of the spaces I've actually been in, like actual leftist spaces, uh, I've never felt like ostracized as a Christian person. Um, and at least in Canada, like, it's not really a secret that I am one. Uh, like every time I've gone to a thing, um, whether it's like the Communist Party of Canada or, I don't know, some kind of like lefty reading group or protest or something, um it's never been awkward but uh i know that they're out there i guess cranky atheists cranky atheist marxists so that's cool um yeah the the friendly ones are are into it i dig that a lot yeah that's definitely not my experience either it's only my experience on the internet but that's to be expected (laughs) Um, when i went to grad school uh i was pretty much the only christian i think and everyone thought that was just really neat not because like I don't know. There's, you know, it was a novelty. It was like uh, a weird flavor of ice cream showing up. Yeah, yeah. No, that's been my experience too. Uh, the uh, like the token Catholic in the room. Most people are like, "Oh, I know about Catholics. Uh, I've heard about Nicaragua." <laughs> and it's like, cool. That's a fine <laughs> reputation. I'm okay with that. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Prepare to okay, be disappointed, um... but that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. The uh, okay. So the next uh, the next iTunes review is called. <laughs> the title is Benadryl for Christian Politics. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to parse that metaphor out in my head, and I'm just thinking of like a very snotty uh, Christian person. That's okay. I'm thinking of the movie Hitch. Uh, there was a very <laughs> famous Benadryl scene in that film. So uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, this is by username Turdling. Uh, Okay, Turdling's review is typically. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Turdling's review is typically. I am extremely allergic and suspicious of any Christian adjacent media. Also, probably doesn't help that I worked for a short time at Sonderman soliciting puff pieces for, <laughs> for their for their series on Amish romance novels and apocalyptic prophetic screeds. Nice. John. Okay, I think I know who this person is actually. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
anyways, good to be suspicious of any Christian adjacent media. That is, uh, get that tattooed on your arm because it is very good rule to live by. Actually, uh, bind it on your forehead and carry it around. That's a good (laughs) biblical way of uh, showing how you feel. That's right. Uh, Despite this, uh, I gave the podcast a shot due to a recommendation from a leftist friend. I'm happy to say I was pleasantly surprised. After listening to a few episodes, I'd even put it more strongly. These guys are killing it. Oh, Oh, nice. Smart conversations. Yeah, that's right. Oh, my gosh. Smart (laughs) conversations, nothing watered down. The Magnificast has won over a very skeptical listener. This is is just, these are good. I feel good about myself. Yeah, me too. Um, So thank you for those very kind words. Um, Again, if anyone else has anything nice to say about us, uh, put it up there, you know? That's right. Uh, it is actually genuinely helpful, apparently, because iTunes, I don't know how it works, but something about reviews, the more you get, the more they, uh, reward you with visibility, so that's a cool thing. Yeah, um, we gotta get up there, so the, let's see, what's the top rated religious podcast right now? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's not us. I'm gonna guess, uh, Joel Osteen's 38 Ways to Not Care About the Poor in Houston, that's my assumption. So, okay, um, so uh, the new and noteworthy section is pretty rough. There's one about Egyptian mysticism. There's one about mindful living. But the the best one that's under the new and noteworthy car- category, though, is called Echoes from the Bell Tower, which is a podcast by the monks from St. Meinrad's Arch Abbey in Indiana. Nice. Uh, you guys should listen to that podcast because it's cool. Uh, those are cool guys over there, and they know they know what's up <laughs> have we ever been new and noteworthy is that a thing that we've been on iTunes? i i don't know i would hope they would tell us if we were yeah um well i guess the the thing is you have to be both like we're new but not necessarily worth noting yeah that's true it's and it's kind of i mean we're not even that new anymore that's true we do they have just like a noteworthy section we could hope for that <laughs> um the they also have a section about what's hot and jill osteen is in that one so dear Dear listeners out there, please, please help us uh, uh, usurp Joel Osteen's podcast position. Yeah, we got to dethrone that guy. And spirituality section. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. This is a good collective goal. If we can all dethrone Joel Osteen together just through this podcast, that would be a victory for the left. I think so. It could be any podcast. I mean, it could be that monk podcast for all I care. Just uh, get Osteen Yeah, together. for sure. What we really need to do is rally behind one good podcast and overthrow Joel Osteen. Yeah, that's right. Is, it, is there like a an entry of strategy in iTunes that we can find? Like uh, who seems to be performing pretty okay and we could all like compromise our ethics in order to uh, appreciate them? Uh, let's see. There is a, under the What's Hot category, there's a, uh, pr- it's called Pray As You Go and it's published by Jesuit Media Initiatives. Oh, so you maybe you could... You could give those guys a call on the old Catholic phone. Uh, that's the fo- <laughs> We've all got one. That's the phone that every... Yeah, right. That's what, You guys all have them. You can call each other all the time. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like Facebook, but with phones. Yeah. It, uh, Pope Francis won't return any of my calls, which is mostly embarrassing, but uh, I'm not, not going to stop trying. Yeah. Good. Don't. <laughs> um, cool. Well, keep sending us iTunes reviews and uh, helps us usurp the golden throne of uh, Joel Osteen and we'll redistribute his uh, iTunes wealth back to you, the listeners. <laughs> okay, uh, good. Dean, what have you been doing this week? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what Man, the you? goofs. We've got the goofs on this episode. we got some good goofs here. Uh, we have goofs. Uh, whether or not they're good remains to be seen. Whether or not they're worth noting. It's not... Uh, I, li- uh, not I like them. All right. I like the goofs. Uh, four out of five stars, these goofs. Um, 
I'm not publishing the review. That's the thing. Uh, so this week, what did we do? Uh, I had an anniversary with my spouse, Emily, who also had an anniversary. Oh. We both had one, coincidentally, at the same time. With one another. <laughs> that's right. Uh, five years Congra- we've been Congratulations. Married. Thank you. Um, that seems like a long time to be married for five years, but like in a good way, not in a, oh my gosh, how much longer kind of way. Um, so that's good. It's good to feel that way on your fifth anniversary. Um we ate some tacos. Uh, we went to Second City, the the comedy place, and that was pretty fun. Um, yeah, no corn boils this week, but anniversary pretty uh, pretty okay. Follow up to the corn boil week, I'd say. Yeah, um, it's okay though because the uh, the sixth anniversary is the corn boil anniversary. <laughs> that's word. right. That's right. We have to get each other corn boil themed gifts. It's going to be really difficult, but uh, <laughs> it's a growing genre. So, um, well, what about you, Matt? What did you do this week? Uh, this week has been exceedingly stressful. Uh, school started, classes started, and uh, way too much stuff to do. So I've been prepping for class a lot. I've also uh, I've been de-stressing from the whole situation because I'm like uh, super stressed out about it. Um, but I've been playing a video game called Just Cause 3. <laughs> nice. And it is good. Are you're, the, you're is the cause a, just? Yeah, you're um, helping lead a fictional, uh, a revolution in a fictional South American country, so. Nice. Yup. Yeah, it's good. So it's not just cause, like, like just because. Uh, They just made a game just because, it's just cause. Okay, that sounds good. That's correct. Yeah, it is, it's fun. It's, um, the best part of the game is that you get this, like, grappling hook, and you can hook the grappling hook on other things that you shouldn't, so you could, like, hook a cow to a helicopter. (laughs) That seems like a useful revolutionary um, tool. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite part of the game is where you uh, fly the cow around. <laughs> uh, that reminds for me the, of uh, for the proletariat. <laughs> a game that I played in high school that I don't even remember the name of anymore, but the entire premise of it was uh, shooting people in Nicaragua. And now that I'm older and smarter, I regret renting it from family video. So it's um, a weird <laughs> synapse firing, but that's what I've got. Um I remember this one game where you were like a a mercenary, but you were you were trying to take out um, no joke. You were trying to take out the uh, North Korean like aristocracy, <laughs> like one by one. No joke. Like that's the game. I can't remember what's called though. For the life, of do me. you play as it a was Seth like... Rogen in it? <laughs> no, unfortunately not. Um, I'm trying to think of. Uh, so it's like a Grand Theft Auto like open world kind of game, but you're always after like the uh, like the north korean guys oh that's uh, um, something i don't know if you i don't know if you saw it this week dean but there was an article um about a north korean video game where you kill um you kill united states soldiers and wow. people were scandalized by it i did but not see uh that. you know uh people yeah people in the united states though have been killing people from other countries in video games for way longer <laughs> uh yeah not so fun when you're on the other side is it <laughs> Um, that's very funny and also very interesting. Uh, I wish I, I, we, we should talk to Derek about that. Um, I wonder if he's played that video game. He went to the DPRK, so I'm sure, yeah. sure he had the opportunity. Yeah. Um, it'd be really interesting. Uh, video games are cool. Well, Matt, so all the video games 
talk is uh, very good and fun, I'd love to do more of it. But this is a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics and not uh, video games, sadly. Um, but We need to get news, back to uh, work. We need to get back in class. We need to get back uh, writing our dissertations and Dreyer studies. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, we're expanding our program. Um, we're not doing only PhDs in uh, Dreyer studies these days, but uh, you can also get a BA in Carter Economics. I don't know if you're familiar with that, uh, but we can give you a little taste here. Um, uh, so, uh, Carter, as in as in Joe Carter, the genius uh, ec- economist from the Acton Institute. Yeah, that that's, Joe Carter. That's the one uh, foundational for all budding, um, you know, Christian free market economists. Uh, all all the stuff everybody's got to know. He's so famous that he wrote uh, the NIV Life Hacks Bible, so you know he means business, <laughs> literally. <laughs> uh what kind of life hacks are in it do you think <laughs> uh one life hack is uh set your homepage to uh the mises institute and then open it every day uh and then copy and paste all the all the text and put it on your own blog and uh put um signed like jesus christ or thus said the lord uh that's a very good life hack life hack do you want to kill a fig tree <laughs> 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 sorry we can also cut that uh but <laughs> no that's good uh life just... hack um if you need to pay your taxes find a fish uh yank a coin out of its face <laughs> and uh, you're good to go uh <laughs> life hack uh did a bunch of people just show up to your party and you, uh, you only have a few loaves and fishes <laughs> just multiply them you dummy <laughs> <laughs> life hack uh, did one of your friends cut off somebody else's ear at a party uh just put it back on uh life hack did you run out of wine at your wedding just that's, turn that's your water the first into life hack actually <laughs> the first one uh niv life hacks bible uh get it it's out today on a ton of media all of the proceeds <laughs> go, go go towards anti-fat um so uh give joe carter your money i guess yeah he doesn't have enough Just... i'm sure um <laughs> Well, here's the great thing about Joe Carter, though. Uh, if you don't know who Joe Carter is, he is a blogger at the Acton Institute, which is, I don't know, for all intents and purposes, the enemy, I guess. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, very very real so, I think. That's uh, that's real. Yeah. Uh, in any case, Joe Carter writes for them, and he writes a blog, uh, I don't know, rounding up all that's good about free market economics and uh, the Bible and Jesus, etc., um, so the Acton Institute is like a think tank for Christians who need more reasons to be as capitalist as they've always been. And, uh, one, one especially good Joe Carter thing came out just this week. Uh, and it was tweeted with what might be like one of my favorite bait and switch Acton, uh, uh, tweets ever. So the tweet was, there are indeed some issues that all Bible believing Christians should be able to agree on. That's well, like a pretty... Sure, that's the kind of yeah, like loving loving your enemies. Yeah, exactly. That's it's probably that one. I think. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Bible believing Christians, what else could you agree on? Um, helping the poor. Uh, the poor will inherit the earth. Like the rich will be sent away empty. Uh, those kinds of things. Things that are actually in the or even just like uh, even just like Jesus, Jesus is Lord. I mean, that's like a a solid one, right? Yeah, everyone believes in that. Sure, that's probably what Joe Carter means. So that's what you'd think, and then you click on the little hyperlink, and you find out that it is uh, not, in fact, what Joe Carter means. The thing that, uh, well, one issue that all Bible-believing Christians should be able to agree on, says Joe Carter, is uh, paying your debts. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which, 
I think is very true and right. Uh, unassailable point. Um, this is now a podcast about paying your debts. Uh, the one, the one, one of the potential things that all Bible-believing Christians should be able to agree on. I mean, like, I, I kind of get it, but at the same time, like, the supreme irony is that. No, I mean, like, every. I mean, no, I don't get it. I can't because every Sunday I go to church and I, and I say, "Forgive us our debts," as we have also forgiven our debtors, and I don't understand what he's talking about, even a little bit. <laughs> I have no idea. I get it. Like, uh, you know, you you give to Caesar what Caesar's or whatever, but which are taxes, but, by the way. I don't know if he. Uh, yeah, those are the that's same not as... debts, right? That's not the amateur same libertarian thing. move. Uh, that's right. Uh, the inability to di- differentiate between uh, taxes and debts is a very big deal. <laughs> uh, yeah, he does have a paragraph where he lists, uh, I don't know, a few Bible verses where he's like, hey, you know what wicked people do? They don't pay their debts back. Uh, or it's like, um, hey, do you know, you know, wh- what's a bad habit? Bad habit is saying that you're going to pay for something and then not doing it. That's like, those are some biblical passages um but for joe carter that also means i don't know like uh apparently being the victim of predatory lending and then deciding that like that's your fault uh, <laughs> all just as biblical <laughs> yeah uh what a what a incredibly bad take yeah i would say among the worst takes uh there are a lot of bad takes at the acton institute uh there was a famous uh, child slavery um defense a long time ago that was pretty good um but this is one of the best uh i think best as in one of the worst that is right um, best of the worst <laughs> so i read this uh brilliantly argued um just airtight uh blog post the other day and i thought uh it would be great to do an episode about private property in particular because that's what uh, the acting institute is all about and it's also a thing that um christians in the left I think actually have a surprisingly kind of hard time sorting out, or at least it doesn't come up as often as it ought to. So I think just people on the left have a hard time sorting it out. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, not not all of the left, but um, you know, the the more center left folks um, right. probably have some trouble with it as well. Well, it's like Bernie Sanders doesn't want to uh, abolish private property. That's just not right on his agenda. Right. Uh, but the weird thing about that is that abolishing private property is one of the foundational goals of the left. Uh, if there is a, despite all the differences between anarchists and Marxists and all the subspecies therein, uh, pretty much everybody's like, that's, uh, that's something that's gotta go. However it goes, it's gotta go. Um, so that's it right, is... but it's a, uh, but it's completely vanished from a lot of our political discourse. Like nobody is, uh. Nobody, no anarchists and communists are like uh, yelling at each other over private property these days. Yeah, that's right. And even the ones that uh, are, um, are, I don't know, generally ineffective or like in parts of the world where, uh, for example, like in Venezuela right now, parts of the world where um, private property has been named as a problem and then kind of halfway dealt with, like where the government decided to expropriate some stuff and peasants decided to expropriate some stuff for themselves because they deserve it um they get met with you know massive backlashes and uh nobody can run to their defense because they're a little too afraid to challenge private property i think so it seems like a good thing to sort through together well maybe we can just talk about um 
like the anarchist objection to private property and then we can talk about the communist objection to private property and go from there does that sound okay yeah that does sound okay i've been reading an inordinate amount of prudon for the last couple of weeks uh for no conceivable reason so i'm prepared for this (laughs) (laughs) the conceivable reason is that it's very good (laughs) yeah that's right um it, it actually Pradhan is very good to read solely because he's like a very good writer he's just a good writer uh w- no matter what you feel about his arguments he just knows how to write a sentence you know he's got that that french enlightenment uh like oomph behind his writing makes you want to yeah. agree with him yeah Pradhan's legit love that Pradhan. okay so let's start with the anarchist uh, objection to private property um one of the most famous objectors of private property <laughs> um, from the anarchist side of the leftist spectrum is Proudhon. Um, so Proudhon is famous for writing a book called What is Property? And then at the very beginning of the book, uh, declaring uh, right off the bat that uh, property is theft. So answers the question pretty quickly <laughs> uh, in a good way, in a good and great way. Uh, so, Dean, can you tell us about uh, Proudhon and property? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, one cool thing about Proudhon is that he is the first person in history to call himself an anarchist. So, got that going for you. Um, but, uh, as far as property theft goes, this is kind of where the anarchism comes into play, which is interesting because, especially for Christian anarchists, one of the first things that I think a lot of Christians feel when they think about anarchy is a suspicion toward the state. And that's obviously like a part of anarchism. Uh, But one interesting thing about Proudhon is that that you can't really answer the state problem without answering the property problem. So uh, when he says property is theft, it's all kind of it's going to come around to the state thing. Just you wait. Um, But essentially what he says is uh, if you if you assume that like without anything without like societies and governments and all that kind of stuff you know this kind of weird natural state of human beings uh nobody really has a reason to say that like they own a thing more than anybody else that's kind of like Proudhon's basic starting point um but nevertheless we live in societies where people do say that they own parts of those things and Proudhon says that the only way you can enforce that principle is through government and legal actions uh, so for Proudhon, like the government basically exists in order for some people to decide that the things that should be belonging to everyone or belonging to nobody, however you want to put it, um, the government exists to decide that those things should belong to one particular group of people or some people. Uh, and that's part of a property. So for Proudhon, to put it, I guess, the most simply, uh, property is theft because uh, nobody actually owns all that stuff, but some people decide that they do. And that's why they're stealing it, because the minute you bring it up, you've kind of already, uh, you know, the minute you you assume there's a legitimate private property, you've already uh, created the concept of thievery, and lo and behold, uh, property's theft. So, bad news bears if you're a a private property guy or girl. Um, So, it's been a minute since I've read Proudhon, but something I remember really liking, too, is that property is theft insofar as, like, uh, you know, so someone says they own it through legal means like they make a claim to it but then like they don't use it they just let it sit right Right. and that's it's also it's also theft in that way where that land um that property could be being used to um uh, produce goods and like things that people need and it's theft in that way um when when one person has the right to just make a decision about how property is going to be used 
it uh, takes away from everyone else who could be using it. Right. Uh, that's also especially interesting for um, Christian anarchists, I think, because uh, in the Christian tradition, there is a long history of early Christian writers saying uh, exactly that same premise, that the things that you own that you're not using are actually being stolen from the poor who could use them, but don't uh, have access because right. they're sitting in your closet or whatever. So on that point, uh, here's a quote from the uh, church father, I think, is John Chrysostom. Is he a church father? Yeah, I don't he's know one of theology. the dads, one of the original trad dads. Trad dads. He's got uh, he's got like a, a, a tucked in polo shirt and he's got <laughs> a, a holster for a cell phone. He's in church with all his kids. Uh, probably didn't have any kids or something because he's a, <laughs> a holy guy or whatever. Anyways, John Chrysostom <laughs> says, whoa, uh, I don't know anything about church history. John Chrysostom <laughs> says, the, <laughs> the rich have that which belongs to the poor, even though they may have received it as an inheritance. So it's that same sort of idea that is uh, undergirding a lot of what Pruton, uh, what Prudon is saying, um, where the rich have it, um, but it actually belongs to the poor. Like, they're just uh, squandering it in right. some very silly ways. Uh, Chrysostom is also famous for uh, basically saying that, like, if you're a rich person, you've got a closet full of coats. Um, you stole all those coats from the poor because they don't have them. Um, so same exact principle. And he also, if I remember right, uh, was a he, he was a preacher in a predominantly kind of wealthy part of the ancient world. So pretty radical dude. Yeah, for sure. Legit. <laughs> it's cool it's cool to see like that same logic though between um i don't know a very important christian thinker and uh an anarchist thinker yeah it's also interesting because in what is property Proudhon actually has a lot of things to say about christianity and christians and he is critical of the church and the christian tradition uh but he regularly like goes out of his way to say that he doesn't think that christianity should be like chucked out or that what he's up to is like a total demolition of the christian tradition or something which is what he could do like a lot of other french people at that time were doing that uh yeah. but instead what he did uh, or what he says is that um he's making these criticisms precisely so that christianity can kind of rediscover that radical core in itself um and it's done like in the service of religion rather than uh as opposed to it so there's a real kind of self-conscious picking up of those threads i think in Proudhon. yeah that's good thank you Proudhon. You did it. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> uh, it also reminds me of some other things that pop up elsewhere in anarchist theory. Like, uh, there's a pretty fun book by um, Peter Kropotkin, who's a Russian anarcho-communist. And uh, it's a book called The Conquest uh, of Bread. Um, I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's pretty fun. Um, he he makes an argument for uh, luxury, luxury anarcho-communism in it, which is very good. <laughs> Uh, it was written in 1906, so that's like a a cool thing. People might as well read now. It's like over 100 years old, but, uh, you know, full luxury space communism is right there. It's all there. Um, it's on the rise again. That's right. Uh, well, one cool thing that he says in there, uh, I'll, I just pulled this passage out and I'll read it real quick. Um, so he says, all is for all. Uh, if the man and a woman bear their fair share of work, they have a right to their fair share of all that is produced by all. And that share is enough to secure them well-being. No more of such vague formulas as the right to work or to each the whole result of his labor. What we proclaim is the right to well-being, well-being for all. And uh, that's like a pretty 
Um, I don't know. That's a claim that I feel like a lot of Christians can actually hang with. That seems to be the kind of thing that Jesus is up to when he's going around, like, indiscriminately healing people and, you know, telling people to, like, pick up their mat and walk and not worry about, I don't know, what's going on um, with all these, like, weird social codes that force people to be excluded. Uh, you know, the the right to well-being, like, that seems to be the kind of thing that Jesus is, like, motivated by in the Gospels and what a lot of Christians are motivated by as well. Yeah, or what about that one uh, that one parable where, okay, I'm going to, like, again, uh, going to butcher everything out of the <laughs> Bible here. That's what I do best, probably. Um, <laughs> there's there's the parable, though, of, like, the, like, the vineyard workers and like one of them comes late and still gets paid the same amount as the rest of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That's, the, that's a yeah. real Bible verse. Yeah. That's right. Oh my gosh. Well, anyways, um, I know it's a parable and probably has lots of deeper meanings if I only knew, uh, Greek or whatever. <laughs> um, but it's always uh, struck me as a really interesting parable in like the sheer economics of it. And, uh, I remember one time I heard, uh, a presentation, um, from, it was like someone who was um, a prospective faculty member or something, like someone who's applying for a job, and they're they were like a business person. Um, <laughs> anyways, they they were talking about um, uh, you know different ways uh, that Christians can uh, participate in business, and like that one parable just stuck in my head the entire time. <laughs> like <laughs> awesome. yeah, like what about this like really weird payment scheme that like uh, is suggested <laughs> in this parable? <laughs> um, how much are you paying your workers? Like, can they only work half a day? I don't know. I know. Okay. It's probably a silly, stupid point, but still. Um, <laughs> yeah. It is like a parody uh, the, of wages, I guess, in a very cool way. I don't know. Some biblical person is going to be like, you're completely wrong, but I don't care. That's yeah. Fine. I'm okay with being completely wrong. Yeah. Uh, what that's we're fine. not wrong about is that property is bad, and that's the that's the main <laughs> point here. Okay? Don't, don't get that's sidetracked. That's the main point. <laughs> So there's like there are a lot of cool anarchist things to say about private property more than what Kropotkin and Proudhon say. Uh, but Matt, maybe you could talk a little bit about like uh, communist objections to private property and what's going on there and how they get to that similar point despite kind of being from a different leftist tradition. Yeah, um, I can do that. Okay, so the communist approach to property and private property is a slightly different than that of um, the anarchists. Um, it's not necessarily that property is theft, but uh, there's just a there's just a problem with a very specific type of property. Um, okay, so I'm no John Greenaway, so this probably won't be a very fun theory time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844, that's the young Karl Marx. Uh, if any of you uh, very orthodox Marxists are listening out there, <laughs> played by um, uh, Jude Law in an upcoming HBO special, uh, <laughs> the, the Young Marx. <laughs> uh that's a young pope joke, yeah by the way for those that's of you a, that yeah, aren't, I know. aren't following along <laughs> i was gonna try to make a game of thrones connection i just, i'm not gonna do it though yeah okay just uh laugh to yourself as if i had L- leave that to the liberals am i right <laughs> uh um okay so in the economic philosophical manuscripts of 1844 uh marx starts talking about um the relationship between the worker and the worker's labor. And this is a really important part for understanding property sort of from this uh, Marxist communist perspective. Um, so I'm going to read a few, a few lines here. 
and uh, we'll see where we get. Uh, so uh, in this section called The Strange Labor, Marx says, The worker becomes all the poorer, the more wealth he produces, the more his production increases in power and range. The worker becomes an even cheaper commodity, the more commodities he cre- uh the more commodities he creates. So um, what Marx is describing here is the way that like um, the more the worker produces, the less his work um, is worth. Uh, the more that he can be sort of mechanized and like that labor can be streamlined through different management techniques and designs and so on, uh, the less the, the worker um, him or herself is worth. Um, so that's an important thing. But things get even worse for uh, the workers uh, as we read more in Marx. Um, <laughs> as usual. As usual. Um, so the worker is pushed to um, make more and then is worth less. This like sort of thing happens to the worker, a sort of existential situation where um, the workers, uh, the, the product of the worker's labor is alienated from the worker uh, themselves. So like the thing, uh, the like the most intimate thing that they're doing, like uh, what they're doing with their hands, sort of manufacturing a product in a factory or whatever, uh, becomes very detached from who they are as a person. So it's no longer sort of like an artisan crafting, um, like a violin in some like very specific artisanal style or whatever. It's now just um, uh, an like assembly line of workers crafting um, <laughs> like identical. Uh, violins for uh, mass production. Um, so uh, Marx calls this alienation, the alienation of labor. Um, let me find one quote here really quick. Okay. So on this point of alienation, uh, Marx says, the worker therefore only feels himself outside his work and in his work feels outside himself. He is at home when he is not working and when he is working, he's not at home. So this like uh, this situation of labor of like um, of industrialized labor is problematic because it puts the worker in this weird position where like when he's at work doing uh, doing whatever uh, workers do, <laughs> uh, they start feel you start feeling like outside yourself. You start like putting your putting your brain on autopilot and just like doing what you're supposed to do, and uh, that's it. So you start feeling very alienated from that thing that you're creating. It's like that thing that you're creating is no longer really your own. Um, this is uh, like what you might call like the expropriation of labor. So the the labor of the the individual worker is being taken from them and um, used uh, to create profit for the capitalists, for the, the bourgeoisie, the people who own the means of production, the factory or whatever. Okay, so that's an important thing to understand, uh, to understand... Um, Marx's kind of understanding and problem of private property or just property in general. So the thing uh, for Marx is that uh, you you actually can own something. So this is, I guess, how um, this is how communists and anarchists are a little bit different. Like you can own something, but uh, the way you own it is through your own labor, like doing uh, performing work on something, creating something with your own uh, labor power is what it takes to own something. Um, but the problem with capitalism is that it doesn't recognize this and it actually steals the product of the workers' uh, labor uh, from them and uh, someone who ought not make money off it makes money off of it. Um, so in light of this whole situation, uh, Marx thinks it's a very bad deal that workers should actually own the means of production and receive the profits from what um, they create. Um, 
And in light of this, um, one of like the main political points that Marx puts in uh, his program when he writes the um, the manifesto of the Communist Party is not just like um, like a welfare plan or something like that, but actually the abolition of property and land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. So Marx thinks that, uh, like the anarchists, uh, but for different reasons, that private property should be abolished. Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does make sense. Um, I think it's interesting to kind of just compare this a little bit with what has been sparked, I guess, in the United States uh, in leftist conversations and also in Christian conversations over the years. Um so uh, one, I'll start with just like a really cool, encouraging example of where this kind of thing comes into play, I guess. There was like, I don't know if people heard, but uh, there was a uh, two women from a Catholic worker community in Des Moines, Iowa, who uh, after Donald Trump got elected, they um, sabotaged the uh, Dakota Access pipeline for several months and then eventually essentially turned themselves in, basically. Uh, because nobody was reporting on it and they wanted to raise awareness about it. And in their defense, uh, they made a pretty interesting distinction between personal private or personal property and private property. And they said, uh, we, we weren't doing violence against any private property, or sorry, against any personal property, only private property. That was the, the oil. Um, and that's like right. a big thing that I think a lot of people have a hard time with, like, the minute you say, hey, we're going to abolish private property, people are like, but what about like my grandfather's watch that I inherited from my dad when I was 12 years old? But it's like, well, communists don't want your grandfather's watch. They just want, you know, <laughs> like uh, a massive industry that forced your grandfather to like work his whole life so that his watch was the thing that he like really valued and wanted to give to his kid or something. Um, right. So I just think like that's a, a really helpful thing that um, in the best cases, like even, you know, Christians who are activists have been able to understand on their own terms. Uh, like the Catholic worker has always distinguished between private and personal property in a way that is helpful. They come out of an anarchist tradition, so that's where that kind of comes from. Um, but that's not the kind of differentiation that you see in a lot of popular leftist discourse now, I feel like. You know, the kinds of things that you see with Bernie Sanders or whatever, uh, but to say nothing of like the Democratic Party, uh, like property itself isn't really a problem let alone like making fine uh important theoretical distinctions about certain kinds of property that would then lead you to like act in certain ways in certain situations like that's not really on people's radar which is like a pretty huge problem i think for getting the left going uh in any sustainable way uh yeah i agree i mean i think that yeah uh building um a welfare society is i think a very good idea <laughs> on the whole yeah um but uh, I guess that shouldn't be the end goal for leftists. Um, I mean, it that would be short-sighted, I think. Right. I, I mean, um, like the, the, the Bernie Sanders types folks, I think, are good and fine um, insofar as they have like a very reasonable goal. Right. Um, like, you know, um, free health care, free education, et cetera, provided through uh, taxes and, and so on. Uh, but leftists have never been uh, about those very reasonable goals. Um, right. <laughs> leftists have, have been about a pretty historic list of demands um, that uh, that working folks should receive. Um, uh, maybe like Kropotkin would say, just well, well-being for all. I like that actually a lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, Marx had some other ideas about what people ought to demand politically. Um, 
not just the abolition of private property, but um, like a very progressive uh, tax on the rich, um, like the abolition of inheritance, that kind of thing. But the, but you're right, though. Uh, but you're right. Overall, um, a lot of the leftist discourse today is about um, largely reformist um, things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Which, like mean, good, good. Yeah, but exactly. like also want more. Yeah, like reform is good insofar as what we have is extremely bad. So, you know, like band-aids are important, um, but uh, they're not, you know, solutions to like very gaping wounds that capitalism continues to like reopen every single day. I think that's kind of the biggest thing. And the interesting thing about conversations about property on the left is that people have not believed the same things about property for the entirety of human history. Uh, like you yeah. get this weird narrative among some people on the right that uh, I don't know capitalism is the the natural way that humans are like this is just what humans are like, um, but like that's not true because no human thought of private property in capitalist terms until capitalism was a thing. So uh, for leftists to poke holes at that, it really not only helps to clarify the situation, but it also opens up these imaginative horizons that allow people to think otherwise. And Christians have, I think, a unique opportunity to really engage the property problem because Christianity has been around longer than capitalism, and Christians didn't always think about private property in capitalist terms. In fact, there's a lot of pretty uh, problematic things that capitalism had to overcome in Christianity in order to, uh, you know, re rejig some of the theological commitments um that were present in earlier forms of christianity in order to make things like speculative capital and uh the ownership of private property possible in the first place yeah so what dean what do you think um what do you think christians can gain um from these different leftist approaches to private property like what does that give us um how does that work for us yeah uh well first of all i think it's good just to understand uh the situation that's in front of you like that's a pretty big gain in the first place like to see that uh for example like if you if you come out of an anarchist tradition and a lot of christians i think are kind of more comfortable with anarchism than they are with communism uh if you come out of that tradition like i don't know sure like the state is bad for a lot of reasons whatever if you're a christian it's bad for idolatrous reasons it's bad for violent reasons etc uh, but what property uh, investigations help to clarify, I think, is that the state exists in large part for the sake of property. So To protect uh, property. Exactly. And that's the thing that a lot of Christians, I think, just have a hard time seeing. And so some of these analyses just really help to clarify that. And it helps make sense of situations on the ground. Like, uh, so anarchists, uh, in case you didn't know, don't like police officers. Um <laughs> And one thing that they say about the police is that they're not just protecting law and order, they're protecting private property. And it's fascinating when you know that to watch how police talk about themselves or about other uh, things that they're trying to do. For example, like uh, if you one of my favorite things to do is to watch um, police Twitter feeds when like a big thing is happening somewhere, Um, like whether it's Baltimore or Ferguson or something. Um, inevitably there will be a tweet about how uh, they're keeping private property safe or, you know, no private property has been destroyed yet and that's like a badge of honor. And, you know, it's it helps if right. you come at that from the left because you can sort of see that as not just like an innocuous police thing to say, but actually a, a very open declaration of what police are for. <laughs> um, there's a really great um, 
example of this over the past week. So, um, as I would imagine every person in the United States probably knows, uh, people have been very, um, people have been recently, I guess, awoken to the problem of like the rate, like, uh, racist statues in the United States, um, (laughs) starting with like civil war statues and so on. Um, something really interesting happened in Baltimore this past week. Um, and there's some really fascinating pictures, uh, that, um, I don't know, activists who were there took, uh, but there's uh, this picture of this giant, I don't know, amassing of leftist activists who um, are at a Christopher Columbus statue. I think it was in Baltimore. Right. Um, and it's really wild because the cops are all standing around the Christopher Columbus statue, protecting it from right. <laughs> from uh, the protesters. I mean, it's it's that type of picture that that tells you exactly what it is that that police in both and like and the state i think at large are about protecting uh protecting private property or protecting property in general i guess in this case it's public property um that the public no longer wants but um regardless that's their function yeah um and i just think uh you know christians have been good at understanding how the state kind of i don't know casts a spell on people or demands their worship in a really troubling way um, and that's like those are critiques worth making, and that's the kind of thing that you often get in people like Chakalul and others. Uh, but I think that without that accompanying analysis of property, those uh, frustrations with idolatry kind of miss the real material uh, effects that are happening. So it's like if you want to get rid of those idolatrous problems, then you better deal with the problem of property because otherwise uh, you're you're just gonna. As long as you have property, if you're a good anarchist, you're always going to have a state. Um, and that's like pretty bad news, I guess. Right. Um, I wonder if there's something here, too, um, that we can we can think of. Um, well, so I know like one huge objection that liberals um, and conservatives, I guess, who are also liberals, um, have to anti like anti-fat is that they um, also destroy property in, in right. different protests. Breaking windows. Right, and they get very uptight about that. Um, maybe sometimes for good reasons, but probably mostly not. Like I don't know, smashing the window of an AT and T store doesn't seem that bad to me. No. Um, in the grand in the grand scheme uh, in the grand scheme of uh, structural capitalist violence, that is barely a blip on the scale. Um, but uh, it's that understanding of private property and pu- and like public space that is motivating some of those types of actions. Yeah. Um, so maybe this will illuminate a bit of that uh, that uh, like objectionable um, attitude there from liberals, right. especially because the liberal response creates oftentimes an equivocation between uh, smashing a window and like taking a life. So you know the kind of violence that's advocated for by neo Nazis is the same violence advocated for by uh, anarchists. Um, that's the kind of get you, thing you get in liberal discourses. Which is just, like, completely not true. Um, right. Uh, but you see liberals upset about, you know, whatever, the burning down of the CVS pharmacy, um, which wasn't done by anarchists, uh, <laughs> being just as bad, for example, as, I don't know, like, whatever the KKK is talking about. And that's, like, not even a little bit true. So Like, a, uh, a very weird thing to think, even. I don't yeah, understand. Yeah. Um, it's actually, it's funny to think about that very point, because... Prudhan opens what is property with a pretty funny example. Um, So uh, I'll just read it because I have it in front of me. He says, uh, if I were asked to answer the following question, what is slavery? And I should answer in one word, it is murder. 
my meaning would be understood at once. No extended argument would be required to show that the power to take from a person their thought, their will, their personality is a power of life and death, and to enslave a person is to kill them. Uh, why then, to this other question, what is property, may I not likewise answer it is robbery, without certainty of being misunderstood, the second proposition <laughs> being no other than a transformation of the first? Uh, and that's that's like a very important question to pose to liberals in exactly that way. Um, you know, like, right. if, slavery is murder. We all understand that in a certain naive way. Uh, we don't have to say anything more about that. Well, property is theft, like... That's not really a logical leap. If anything, like property is theft, it's probably less of a logical leap, at least I think, than saying slavery is murder in a certain way. So I don't know. Like these kinds of discourses just clarify that. Um, But do you think, Matt, is there a way that uh, communist objections to um, property uh, also kind of illuminate it differently because they come at it from a different kind of way than anarchists do? Um, sorry, do you mean, do they illuminate the situation with anti-fat differently or? Uh, just, uh, like, yeah, sorry. Uh, I should have said more. Do they give, um, Christians on the left, uh, or just people on the left in general, I guess, do, do communist objections to property give those people, uh, give us more tools to kind of understand, um, the situation at hand and what are they? Like, what is it about the communist objections to private property that Christians, um, could sort of internalize and then put to good use? Yeah, I think that what the um, the communist framing of the problem of property does for Christians is it gives us a way to understand um, it gives us a way to understand like the way that people relate to their labor in everyday life. Um, so I think that's like the most helpful thing. Just like um, like there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible that you know when we talk about biblical views of labor or something like that. Um, we think about, um, well, like the, the workman is worth their wage or whatever. And that's a nice thing to say and, and is true, by the way. Um, but <laughs> it it, um, it leaves, uh, leaves a little bit more to be desired, right? To say the workman deserves their wage and that like um, the, more, the more and the faster the worker produces, the less that worker is worth to their boss is like completely uh, – it's, it's not the same. Right. One gives you a little bit more understanding of what that situation is uh, in terms of labor and in terms of property. Um, Right. There's there's another another point here, too, that I think Marx is helpful. And I didn't I didn't get to it the first time when I was talking about Marx. Um, So I'll do it right now. Uh, So uh, Marx also in the manifesto says that private property is already done away with for nine tenths of the population. Uh, This is, again, helpful for Christians because it it's it's a way to recognize um, the poor in more more than just spectacular terms right it's a way to recognize that um that that people like showing up to your church asking for a donation right like those people might be poor but there's another there's another and more structural way of understanding um who the poor are and like who the oppressed are um that like private property is is done away with for most of the population like um we like structurally capitalism does this that it concentrates wealth with a few uh, only a few people and leaves the rest of them um relatively uh propertyless 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 i don't know i can't say <laughs> the word right now um so i i think that um what what marxist and communist assessments of labor and property do are kind of give us um just like a metric by which we can judge the world and kind of compare it to um i don't know our christian ethics or morality that we should be bringing in um one one more quote uh because uh it's good if that's cool 
Yeah, um, you can't have too many quotes on this podcast from people that are smarter than us. <laughs> quote, quote cast. Yeah. Uh, so um, over the past few weeks, we've been I've been referencing uh, Richard Gilmanopolsky a ton because his books are very good and because he is a personal friend of mine. <laughs> um, he was my he was my advisor in grad school, and he's a very good and nice person. And he's coming to speak at my institution this coming year, and I'm super excited. Um, <laughs> So uh, we've been talking a lot about the book uh, Spectres, of, Spectres of Revolt. Uh, he has another book, though, that's also very good. And it's called Precarious Communism. And uh, it's a it's a detournement of the Communist Manifesto. So basically what he did was uh, he read the Communist Manifesto a ton and he loved it. And he thought, well, what what should I make it say? And he rewrote it to sort of say something a little bit different. Yeah, I like um, that. So here's... Yeah, it's really cool. So um, in the Communist Manifesto, at the very end of the second section, Marx is giving this big list of like uh, the demands uh, for uh, socialists and, you know, the abolition of, pro- of property and um, uh, so on and so forth. I'm not going to list them all. Anyways, um, when he writes the uh, when he, he rewrites the bit about the abolition of private property, this is what he writes. And I think it's pretty interesting and I think it should really strike a chord with uh, people who are Christians. Uh, so Richard Gilmanopolsky writes, For too many, wealth, property, and opportunity, and the lack thereof, are accidents of birth determined by class, inheritance, and luck. Communists understand the fact that most infants are established at birth as either rich or poor, that upward mobility is a demonstrable lie, and that the avenues facing the very young are either opened or closed from the start, um, and they're not determined by personal responsibility. So, um, again, another way to understand uh, the sort of arbitrary way that, uh, like, property and wealth are dealt with in capitalism, um, that it's mostly just by luck whether or not you will be a person who is wealthy or not. Um, yeah. And even, I think, to point it out even that the, the very young are either open from uh, open or closed from the start is, is so interesting because it, it just shows you how silly this uh the the pattern of distribution of of wealth and property is in a capitalist society um it has nothing to do with how hard you've worked um and so on it's just uh it's just whether or not you were born to a family with means or or not yeah that's right um so this is useful for christians i think because again it's just another helpful descriptor of um of who the people we're supposed to be allying ourselves with are and um who we're supposed to be serving and so on yeah, I think that that's really great, uh, especially because it does kind of um, it deals with the problem of just the contingency of human life uh, in a way that suggests that maybe one of the tasks of human beings today would be to make those contingencies a little more bearable than they are right now. Like they don't have to be as dumb <laughs> as they are. Uh, yeah, completely. I don't know. That's just such a good selling point to me. Like. Um, don't you think that, I don't know, the fact that most people are born in situations that aren't necessarily good, like that's most people in the world are born in situations that are bad. Uh, isn't that right. like a dumb thing that shouldn't be the case? Like we have the means to not do that. Right. And, and like, if you are a Marxist, um, then it seems obvious that like, um, the workers should own the means of production and they should get, they should get the, like the profit from what they create. Um, so like, if you want a political economy where, um, where you actually do, uh, like the people that work, uh, get stuff, like 
I don't know, man. Capitalism isn't your thing. <laughs> yeah, it's... and if you're going to call yourself an anarchist, uh, capitalism is also not your thing. Uh, those right, are mutually sure. exclusive terms. <laughs> it's weird to be on this podcast uh, suddenly talking about anarchism because I haven't thought about anarchism since I was like a teenager, um, which is what brought me into kind of leftist conversations via my uh, kind of Christian commitments. And uh, yeah, it was. it's like a weird thing to kind of revisit some of these uh, anarchist characters and think through the fact that when i was like into christian anarchism i never encountered uh the property problem uh as often as i guess now i i wish that i would have <laughs> yeah i think that's a, that's a failure of christian anarchists everywhere i believe um yeah. because like all of the good all of the really good anarchists base their entire philosophy on it i mean bakunin Proudhon, kropotkin etc those guys they're all about talking about property and right. the christians are just like uh yeah but the state is idolatrous and like that's a good <laughs> point i suppose but like you're missing the larger conversation going on with anarchists yeah uh some of them touch it better than others like ammon hennessy i always thought was a uh, pretty good about it and there are like some cool i don't know peter moore and dorothy day stuff but even then like they're kind of afraid because they're hamstrung by um catholic social teaching which isn't uh completely opposed to property just a certain kind actually on that yeah. note uh i should mention this because in Laudato Si, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but it's always worth bringing up again. So Laudato yeah. Si is an encyclical that Pope Francis wrote in 2015 uh, about the environment, but also about a lot of other things. In fact, uh, Verso released a version of it called, like, I forget now, something like the Encyclical on Inequality or something, um, right. which is actually a pretty accurate <laughs> descriptor. Um, but in that document, uh, Pope Francis says some pretty cool stuff one thing that he says uh is about private property and uh, he has like a couple sections on it and in one of them one of the sections he says uh the christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property as absolute or inviolable and has stressed the social purpose of all forms of private property saint john paul ii who was uh two popes ago if you don't know uh, forcefully reaffirmed this teaching, stating that, quote, God gave the earth to the whole human race for the sustenance of all its members without excluding or favoring anyone, unquote. There's a good Proudhon connection. Uh, yeah. These are strong words, Pope Francis says. He noted that, uh, I don't know, a bunch of other stuff, and then he goes on to say, um, he clearly explained that, and this is where the Catholic worker gets a little tripped up, I think, um, John Paul II said, the church does indeed defend the legitimate right to private property, but, this is a very important but, uh, she also teaches no less clearly that there is always a social mortgage on all private property in order that goods may serve the general purpose that God gave them. Consequently, he maintained, it is not in accord with God's plan that this gift be used in such a way that it benefits uh, its benefits only favor a few. This calls into serious question the unjust habits of a part of humanity. Um, so, I, I don't know, like, it's pretty important that uh, Pope Francis... Uh, came out and just said like christianity we never affirmed uh private property as absolute or inviolable like that's a viable thing and a thing that is relative uh so even if you i don't know feel like there's room for private property in christianity like uh the catholic way of doing it at least is not very far off from the way that Proudhon is up to uh talking about it like th maybe there's some arguing of semantics and maybe there are some real material differences but uh it looks a lot more anarchist or even communist than um, one might expect, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Um, here's here's an interesting point, though. Um, I, I hope it's interesting. 
so uh, where where uh, he's quoting John Paul II uh, again, uh, he uh, he says the church does indeed defend the legitimate right to private property. So um, I wonder how anarchists would feel about that. I not being um, a hard anarchist um, and being more of a communist persuasion. Right. Um, the defense of a certain type of private property seems okay to me. Right. Like as long as it's not bourgeois property, right? Like yeah, as exactly. long as it's not um as as long as it's not wrongly uh derived, expropriated. Yeah, and that's definitely what Pope Francis has in his sights. I mean you can't read this encyclical without uh understanding that it's the bourgeois form of private property that he's especially pissed about. Um yeah. yeah. That's always I guess like the um the defense of certain types of property um by institutions, I guess, has always been um it's always been like the hardest part for me to understand uh, from the point of view of anarchists. Like, um, so like Bakunin is really famous for criticizing Marx uh, a lot of times, rightfully so. Um, Bakunin is a guy we haven't really talked about him on this podcast. He's a Russian anarchist. Uh, check him out. <laughs> he has a <laughs> uh, some a book called State and Revolution, and it's good. Read it. Um, ultimately, though, um, the the difference that Bakunin has with Marx is that. Um, Marx thinks that the state should uh, seize power for a time um, after the revolution, so as to defend the revolution. Um, where Bakunin thinks like that's that's just making um, making a good thing bad uh, in doing so, um, be- because like to to have power, you know, would kind of defeat the purpose of the revolution in the first place. Uh, if you're an anarchist. Um, Anyways, uh, the defense of private property, uh, legitimate pri- private property, is uh, a position that I think is easy for communists to hold, but uh, more difficult for anarchists to hold. I don't yeah, know. What do you think, right. Dean? No, I think yeah. that's right. Um, it's also uh, <clears throat> some of the Catholic worker writings have identified even that problem in their own kind of conversations with anarchists in the 20th century. I guess it's maybe a barrier, but it's also... <laughs> Like, you have to ask a Catholic what they even mean when they're talking about private property. Like, oftentimes, I think what what a pope means by the legitimate right to private property um, is not the same thing, per se, as what Perdon means or what Marx means. Uh, sometimes right. it's not even clear that, like, um, sorry, popes, it's not clear that you know what you're talking about when you're talking about private <laughs> property. So, I uh, mean, but at least, at least the pope is, like, saying something meaningful about private yeah. property. I don't think there's any Protestant on the planet that exists right now in a place of power that's talking <laughs> about private property in a meaningful way. <laughs> uh, yeah. They just think it's, like, natural natural law kind of, kind of stuff there. Right. Um, yeah, and I think uh, it's just important to recognize that there are actually more commonalities in terms of the suspicion toward uh, bourgeois property between... Um, the Christian tradition broadly construed and anarchists and communists specifically. Um, I mean, yeah. Pope Francis himself said that communists uh, are people who think a lot like Christians. I mean, he's been very friendly to communists. He's formed in Latin America where, you know, communism was a thing that Christians got into in a big way. Uh, and around the world, like anarchists uh, and communists have enjoyed the support of Christians and vice versa. Uh there were a lot of Christians who joined, like, um, there were a lot of worker priests in particular who joined anarchist trade unions and communist trade unions in, like, France and Italy and Spain. So, you know, uh, on the ground, like, a lot of these distinctions fade away because there are ways of translating the concepts, I think. Uh, once you say that private property is not inviolable and is not absolute, uh, it's not really clear 
how um <laughs> how you could create a state that would defend it in the way that capitalism does for example right so lots of lots of good wiggle room in there you know yeah exactly that's the key catholic wiggles that's what you want catholic wiggles <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh christianity has a pretty complicated relationship with property uh, but I think that looking to some prominent leftist thinkers, Marx, Proudhon, Kropotkin, Bakunin, um, and probably a lot of others, uh, <laughs> they can all add some uh, helpful diagnostics to the Christian analysis of the capitalist political economy. Yeah, for uh, sure. They give us uh, some other eyes to see, for sure. Um, that's a Bible verse uh, in there somewhere. Uh, that's a ref- that's a Christian reference. Thank you. Uh, the abolition uh, the abolition of bourgeois property, for example, can add some valuable insight for Christians insofar as it supports the poor and discourages idolatry. Uh, that's a big deal. So Christians ought to have a different orientation toward wealth and private property in general. Um, but it's not always easy to parse out what that orientation should be or what it should look like. And these leftist ways of thinking probably have more in common with what it should look like than uh, more right-wing ideologies. And after all, in Christian liturgy, we're always asking for the forgiveness of debts and to forgive those who are indebted to us. So let's just keep (laughs) on doing that. Yeah, if there's anything that a biblical Christian should agree on, it's uh, forgive your debts and and your debtors. Yeah, so hey, if there's anyone from Wells Fargo out there in, uh, in a, <laughs> a place that can make some decisions, if you could forgive my loans, that would be very good of you. Yeah, um, one of my favorite things is uh, Trilling Navient, which is the company that bought oh, all yeah. my student debt. Uh, that's yeah, like me to too. On Twitter. Yeah, um, I I used to do that for a while, and I don't have, yeah, so um, so I don't know, Navient, uh, Wells Fargo, um, Sally May. I'll just stop. Um, if any of the CFOs of those institutions are Christians, then they would do the right thing in forgiving everyone's debts. <laughs> or uh, that's a joke, but also not really. And, and join the Acton Institute, I guess, and serve Mammon instead. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Like us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter, Favus, or whatever it is that you do on SoundCloud. Uh, but if you have time, it's actually super helpful to have iTunes reviews, as we said earlier, because uh, it gives us more visibility. So please do that. Also, we can read them on the show, and that's fun to do. Uh, you can subscribe to our newsletter called The Magnifesto, where we collect articles, book quotes, and more uh, things that we're reading, that sort of thing. And we usually write like a thing or two about an inspiring Christian leftist or like an idea or something. So, you know, something to, to wet your leftist whistle, if you will. Um, and uh, if you like what you heard and you want to support the podcast, you can donate on our Patreon. Uh, all this stuff is at our website at themagnificast.wordpress.com. So as always, we'll let the band The Illogical Spoon play us out, which, by the way, are a group of uh, anarcho-primitivist Christians. So if you dig to that Doug, if you dug that part of the podcast, uh, check those folks out. See you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, 
keep your hoods up, when you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, when you keep your hoods up.